Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity at Dana-Farber. Today, we're talking about day one highlights at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Vienna. We have wonderful investigators with us. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Yan. He's an attending thoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and an assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Yan. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. He has two amazing studies that we are going to be discussing. First is the second primary diagnosis and a subgroup analysis of the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. Dr. Yam, in a very quick time, can you summarize (laughs) some of this information for our listeners about this very important study? Okay, great. Well, thank you again. In terms of the incidence, timing, and survival of second primary lung cancers, we don't really know much about this group. And many patients diagnosed with screen-detected lung cancers achieve excellent long-term survival. So that raises the importance of evaluating the risk of second primary lung cancers in this population. And we looked at the National Lung Screening Trial and found that about 6% of patients diagnosed with stage 1 to 3 lung cancer developed a second primary lung cancer during follow-up, which is a rate of about 1 to 2% per year. And of the patients who developed a second primary, 55% developed a synchronous second primary, so around the same time of discovery of the first lung cancer, and 45% developed a metachronous second primary. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. What was the time frame for that metachronous uh, cancer to come? So for metachronous primary lung cancers, the median time from cancer diagnosis to the diagnosis date was 32 months. And over 27% of metachronous second primary lung cancers were diagnosed more than four years after the date of the initial primary lung cancer diagnosis. That's extremely important because that brings attention to the importance of long-term follow-up. I think sometimes ourselves and patients kind of after a few years, we are like, oh, you know, we delay a little bit more the scan, so it's not that much primary. But not that much focus on that. So 27% of four years, that's impressive. And Dr. Yang, what are some of the limitations of this study? So this is looking at just the data from the National Lung Screening Trial. And so the the population may not be, the the results may not be generalizable to a non-clinical trial setting. A lot of, or most of the cohort in the National Lung Screening Trial was white. And so some of the results may not be applicable to black or Asian populations. That's very important because... And, and um, sorry, black, Hispanic, Asian, and, and other populations. Yeah. That's very important because some, we can no extrapolate that data to minority populations. But I think we still have to be cautious about continue to follow patients. 27% higher than four years. And we know that minority populations are lost to follow up to a higher frequency. So we can only imagine these numbers are probably higher, right? Yes. 
Um, one question I have in these areas, what is next? Like, what are some of the plans to try to evaluate this further? That, that's a great question. I think it's going to be important to study the to study surveillance of these uh, patients and to study it formally. So, for example, um, either prospectively or even in a randomized trial setting where you try to look at different surveillance regimens. I know this has been done in colorectal and other cancers, and I think that's something that will be important to look at in the future. The, the other thing is, given the higher than expected rate of second primary lung cancers, it's going to be important for thoracic surgeons, radiation oncologists who are treating the earliest stage lung cancers to think about parenchymal, the importance of or the role of parenchymal sparing operations or procedures. And that will be probably in day two. Um, tomorrow, there's uh, Dr. Nasir Torki will be talking about that in his trial of CALGB140503, which I think everybody is excited to uh, learn about. And that's a great transition for the second study that you presented, because it's important to save parenchymal tissue in younger patients can live longer, and they may have higher risk of second primaries, particularly if the smoking sensation is not discussed, which we know that only 3 to 7% of patients globally, not on lung cancer, but all cancer patients receive a smoking sensation counseling, another place for improvement. So let's move to your study about young versus older adults. This is an evaluation of the National Cancer Database to understand you know, young patients with lung cancer. Dr. Yang, could you summarize some of these findings for us? Yes. So right now, lung cancer screening guidelines in the U.S. are established to screen high-risk adults over age 50. And that means anybody who's, who's younger than that, so 49 years and younger, are not currently eligible to get screened for lung cancer. And what we found was that younger patients with lung cancer are more likely than older patients to be diagnosed with later stages of disease. In fact, way more likely to be diagnosed at a later stage of disease. And that illustrates the need to develop strategies to increase the early detection of lung cancer among younger patients who are currently ineligible for lung cancer screening. I think you have some striking numbers that I'm going to try to recall. So from 20 to 29 years old, 76% of patients have a stage 4 and from 30 to 39, 70% of patients have a stage 4 disease. Um, so the consequences of delays in diagnosis are large, right? So not only uh, because of survival, but also the financial consequences, the family nucleus. Young patients do not prepare for a diagnosis of lung cancer, so they're often isolated and they're often disrupted, right? They feel... Uh, out of place, particularly with lung cancer, right? There's a lot of lack of awareness. So you mentioned some improvements in survival in younger adults. What do you think that has been attributed to? That, that those are great points and great question. The but just to uh, address one of your earlier points, it's actually even higher. So for 20 to 29 year olds and 30 to 39 year olds, it's almost, it's over 70% of patients were diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, which is a really high percentage. In terms of the, uh, your question about the survival improvements, I think that 
the improvement in survival can certainly be attributed to targeted therapies, immunotherapies, uh, but not to earlier detection of lung cancer. So we can say that the improvement on survival is the improvement that the research brought to the entire cohort, but not specific to young patients. That's right, yes. One last question about this study, Dr. Jan. What is, you think, the take-home message for the practicing oncologists, for primary care, medical oncologists, radiation, and surgeon, when it comes to the data you presented for young patients with lung cancer? Thank you. Well, I think that one of the issues that was really striking for us was even if somebody who has, even if somebody is young and has lung cancer, their five-year survival is not better than somebody who is 80 and has lung cancer. In fact, the five-year survival is still only 10 to 15% for young patients. These are patients less than 49 years of age, often a 45-year-old mother of two. And so it is a really sad situation we are in right now. And really, I think that what we're trying to, our goal with this study is to highlight that this is a really important issue, a critical issue to try to develop new strategies to help these patients who are younger who have lung cancer, to help them detect the lung cancer earlier, because an overwhelming majority of these younger patients have their disease detected at stage four, which is the latest latest stage. Thank you so much, Dr. Yuan. I think it's very important that it, the time is now to remember that there is no age cutoff to get lung cancer, that the only thing you need is a pair of lungs, and also to leave behind any bias that only male, older men get lung cancer. So thank you so much, Dr. Yan, for being here with us. Let's turn to our next abstract. There's a lot of focus at this meeting on early detection. We know that detecting lung cancer at an earlier stage definitely improves outcomes. Let me turn to uh, Kuhn Denise from Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, Kuhn, you highlighted a bit of differences between Nelson and NLST, and when we know both of those studies showed the benefit to screening, there were some, some differences in how those studies were done. Can you talk a little bit about your work? Uh, yeah, thank you, Stephen. Uh, we did a model-based analysis of data from the Nelson study that actually replicates a previous analysis we did of the NLST. So we were able to compare those outcomes. And we know the Nelson study and the NLST differed in various ways. The Nelson study has had four screens at increasing screening intervals, whereas the NLST had three screens at annual screening intervals. Populations were different, different male to female ratio. There was also um, a different screening eligibility criterion for uh, entering the trial. And we also saw different outcomes. The Nelson trial had a 24% uh, lung cancer mortality reduction among males. The NLST had a 20% reduction across the trial. So we're interested to know how do those differences play in. And particularly, we know that the two trials employed a different nodule management protocol. The Nelson trial looked at the volume of a nodule for referring to a follow-up. And the NLST looked at the diameter. And with the NLST nodule management protocol, we also saw higher follow-up rates for uh, baseline, but also uh, later screenings. And this was somewhat reduced in the Nelson study, where they employed a volume-based protocol, which is, of course, positive in the sense that it reduces the number of potential unnecessary follow-up procedures, scans that were not needed for further checkup, or even maybe biopsies that were not needed. But then, of course, if we're sending less people uh, to follow-up, are we maybe missing some more cancers? So we were interested in modeling all these 
different, dif uh, different differences between the two trials and seeing whether the CT sensitivity was any different between the Nelson trial and the NLST. And actually what we find when we, in our MISCAN lung model, which is a microsimulation model, uh, which we do cost-effectiveness analyses with, but with uh, which we can also exactly replicate the circumstances of each trial with respect to uh, the smoking history of the participants, with respect to uh, their age at the time they start screening, the timing of those screens. We replicate all those circumstances in our model. And then what we find if we compare our expected number of detectable cancers to the cancers that were found in each of the trials, that the results of the Nelson trial are actually suggestive of somewhat higher sensitivity for detecting early stage lung cancer, just despite having uh, more stringent cr criteria for follow-up. And what this suggests to us is that the volume-based nitro management is actually quite successful in identifying malignancy and that we're not sacrificing sensitivity, but actually maybe even improving it. We see for stage 1A adenocarcinoma, a sensitivity of 73% in the um, analysis of the Nelson trial. And in our previous analysis, we showed a 57% sensitivity in the NLSC. So that's a 16% uh, increase. And for the most prevalent histology and for the stage that you actually want to find, of course, the early stage, uh, that's so valuable in making screening more beneficial for uh, for any uh, country that wants to implement it. So that's a, a pretty big significance. And as you mentioned, this is sort of the area where it potentially can have the greatest impact. And so are you concluding that you know, a volumetric approach is really what we should be focusing on going forward? Uh, to us, that, that's, the, uh, that's the interpretation. And that's uh, um, where, of course, we're already happy to see it reduce follow-up procedures and um, to see it even improve uh, sensitivity to us suggest if that volume-based nodule management may really be offering some significant benefits for, uh, for countries looking to implement screening. Now, as you're building a program, though, a volumetric analysis, does that require additional training, additional technologies? Is the world ready to sort of implement that? There may be different investments, uh, depending on the type of scanner used, and also some uh, aid with computer-aided detection systems. And um, no, we're not looking to make anyone's decision on this. It's, of course, an assessment that incorporates also those, uh, those evaluations. But with regards to detectability, we think it's, uh, it's, it's up there. Well... Kundanais, this is really impressive work here. What, what's next? What's the next step uh, with this kind of work? Well, to see improvements in CT sensitivity, regardless of whether it was derived with a particular protocol, is just so valuable for screening. And it opens up possibilities. Of course, we're looking to the US who are already recommending annual screening for people with uh, 20 packages between 50 and 80 years of age. But for many European countries, there's still this, uh, this issue of is it effective, but also is it cost effective? Can we maybe do things to make it more efficient? And we, when you have a higher sensitivity, you can maybe get away with screening someone um, every two years. We see uh, the, our uh, research group is leading the four in the long run trial, which is starting just now, where we actually test this, uh, where we test if someone has a negative baseline screen, uh, can we refer them to a two-year follow-up rather than a one-year follow-up? And this would make screening so much more efficient, especially for those countries that are concerned with efficiency, which is uh, for many, well, if we look to low to middle income countries, but also just European countries that are concerned, they're single payer systems generally, they're very concerned with cost effectiveness. And this will be valuable to find out. And then if the CT sensitivity is increased, whether it be through nodule management or improvements with AI, you have increased confidence that you can get away with that, that someone is 
equally well off with their two-year follow-up because their probability of having lung cancer when they have a negative test is just uh, very low. Wonderful work. I uh, love to, to see that continue. Uh, let's sort of stay on the theme of, of early stage. Once we detect these early stage lung cancers, we, we can ideally treat them. We also have with us Dr. Jerushka Naidu, medical oncologist at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins. Jerushka, we also saw a little bit of data from Nadim. Nadim was a study that really looked at neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. And at this meeting at, at WCLC 22, we saw some of the, the first look at some of the correlatives that we saw. Can you walk us through that at a high level? Sure. So, um, so this was a presentation by Dr. Casarubios um, assessing uh, the immunologic profile of these patients based on tumor bulk RNA-seq. So essentially, this is a 395 gene panel that aims to assess the immunologic processes that may be going on uh, pathologically and that differentiate between patients who achieved a complete pathologic response, which is defined as no active tumor cells in the resection specimen, compared to those who did not achieve achieve a pathologic complete response where there is some degree of, uh, of tumor cells accessible. And broadly, in this analysis, what the investigators demonstrate is that a pathologic complete response was achieved in 22 patients and non-pathologic complete response in 14. And in those patients who did not achieve a pathologic complete response, they appeared to have a poorer outcome in terms of progression-free and overall survival. And these were associated with some immunologic features, namely AKT expression and an increase in activated dendritic cells and neutrophils. So I think, you know, something that's very interesting here is we want to understand which patients may benefit most from uh, a neoadjuvant approach in early stage lung cancer. And of course, the opportunity in early stage lung cancer is we have tissue before and after. And really, it's these biologic deep dives that may help us to understand which patients may benefit from one approach versus maybe an adjuvant approach versus maybe chemoimmunotherapy or immunotherapy alone. So really, a, a first step in helping to dissect this what, what were your, some of your thoughts on the data, Stephen? You know, I was really just impressed with how sophisticated we are at further personalizing therapy, really trying to move away from empiric approaches of neoadjuvant chemo IO for everyone or adjuvant IO for everyone, really trying to deliver the treatment where it's going to make the biggest impact and where it's needed. I also thought the ability to maybe predict how and, and who would recur, I think, is, is immensely important. Those populations would be at higher risk and maybe we can enrich further adjuvant studies um, with a, the group of patients that are most likely to be in need of, of those. Uh, another presentation we saw, and I think we just have time for one more, was more in the metastatic setting, and it focused on sotorasib, that is uh, a direct KRAS G12C inhibitor that has FDA-accelerated approval in the U.S. Um, this is an agent that was studied in the Code Break 100 study, and Dr. Bob Lee from Memorial Sloan Kettering talked about one of the cohorts that looked at a different type of combination uh, Drushka, can you sort of go over that also at a high level and, and what he showed? Sure. So, so this is the first study that's aiming to assess the combination of this new KRAS G12C targeted agent sodoracib together with immunotherapy. And in this study, the combination of either atezolizumab, an anti-PD-L1 monotherapy, or pembrolizumab, an anti-PD-1 monotherapy, was combined with sotoracib. High-level thoughts, this was a small study aiming to assess whether the combination given either as a lead-in approach, where sotoracib was given for either three weeks or six weeks initially, followed by the combination, versus combination from the start may be preferable in terms of toxicity outcomes. 
and, and broadly what we saw is there were very small numbers of patients that were assessed, um, sort of 10 in each group and then 19 in each subgroup receiving either lead-in versus concurrent. And the main toxicity of interest really was hepatotoxicity. And while the numbers were small, there were um, relatively concerning uh, incidences of hepatotoxicity and even grade 3 hepatotoxicity in some cases. And the conclusions by Dr. Lee suggesting that adopting a lead-in approach of sotorasib monotherapy first followed by the combination may be the logical step forward based on this early look at the data. Uh, what did you think, Stephen? You know, I, I remain a little unconvinced. Um, it, it's sort of a smaller sample size. What I definitely feel like is in that study, giving full-dose sotorasib with a uh, PD-1 or pd one inhibitor to me is not a well-tolerated approach. Really, that, that grade 3 hepatotoxicity uh, was quite high. And this is sort of uh, consistent with what we know about other IO and TKI combinations. This is just not something we do um, with other agents, right? Yeah, you know, I think that this is a lesson that I guess we keep learning when we're combining targeted therapy and immunotherapy. This reminds me of a similar study of when Osimertinib was combined with Dovalumab some years ago, stopped early for, again, uh, uh, hepatotoxicity and also pneumonitis. Uh, there is a, a publication by Sanjay Poppet's group identifying that patients who had received prior immunotherapy who subsequently got a KRAS G12C inhibitor had hepatotoxicity published in, in the JTO-related uh, uh, articles. So I think the other important thing to say here is we know that immune-related toxicity that occurs can have an esoteric time to development. So I guess a question coming to my mind is, is a lead-in uh, the right approach in terms of timing when we know that iotoxicity can sometimes occur even very late um, with combination approaches. So really more to be done in this area, I think. I mean, the, the need to me is, is clear. Right now, sotorasib is approved in the second line and beyond setting, and I think it is our standard of care there. We reserve immunotherapy in the frontline setting because unlike EGFR, unlike ALK, there are patients with KRAS G2C that can have long-term survival, maybe even cure with immunotherapy. So we don't want to deprive them of that opportunity. Immunotherapy, I think, does have to be part of the frontline treatment unless you can tell me who's not going to get that long-term benefit. But there are preclinical data that suggests sotorasib and immunotherapy really can have sort of true synergy, that sotorasib can affect the microenvironment. We just have to show that it, it's safe and that it's sort of worth whatever toxicity. So I think the full-dose concurrent does not seem like the way to go the lower dose lead-in, potentially, but I would definitely need to see some head-to-head -head with IO alone to really show that it's adding anything beyond toxicity. So small numbers, uh, but, but very interesting data. Absolutely. Totally agree. And I think important to sift this out as inevitably these agents will move into an earlier stage setting um, and uh, implications for the timing of IO and the synergistic toxicity will be important in particular in the curative setting. Well, uh, a lot more to talk about, but uh, we are on time for this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Lung Cancer Considered. I encourage you to log in to the virtual platform to catch all the rest of the highlights and important data that's coming out of here from Vienna, Austria, WCLC 22. Tune in tomorrow for day two highlights where Dr. Flores will cover the, the top abstracts of the day, including the first overall survival look from Empower 010. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org and our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.